Let's find our places, and if you have your Bible with you, then go ahead and take that, open it to 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. Man, I truly, you, I know that you probably would expect that the leaders and staff would do more coordinating together, for example, that we would tell Wayne what we're talking about so they can plan the songs. We do none of that. But man, bro, the songs today were fantastic, and especially... I think for what we have to hear, and especially in the life and the time that we're living in. And that happens so often, truly, and I, I don't want to mess that up, so we intentionally don't coordinate. It's like it's really cool. And uh, you can tell when Wayne's walking with the Lord or not. So that's, <laughs> that's really good. So today's a good day. You could probably tell if I'm doing that also, and I maybe should just pray, Lord, forgive me. Okay, so, um, you know, we... We're living in a tough time, and we talk about it a lot, and, and we talk about, talk about it a lot in the current events that we're living through these days because, well, if you're anything like me, then you can't get away from it, even if you wanted to. It's just everywhere, and these are, these are, these are hard days. Um, it, it's hard for me. Here we are in the middle, second half of July, it's hard, it's hard to remember that in January and February, things were normal. None of this had started yet just six months ago. Um, so much has, has gone on. Um, you know, on top of all of the stress that each of us have to navigate personally with our families, whether those be issues of health or safety or income, future, are the kids going back to school, not to mention civil rights issues, constitutional issues. There's all the controversy or about whether or not all of the COVID reporting is legitimate or not. Should you wear a mask or not? Is all this political or not? These things are in front of us every day, every channel, everywhere you go. Social media, it's just bombarding us all the time. And well, what happens is I've noticed that one of the ancillary effects as a result of all that is that more and more people are divided. This, these subjects that are in front of us, if they've done nothing else, they've served to effectively polarize our population. And, and I'm speaking as Americans, not just as Christians, but today we want to talk specifically as Christians because, well, we have the ability to overcome that in the strength of the Lord, right? So even if you don't necessarily feel divided against people, that'd be great, um, probably you'd admit that you're preoccupied. You're so worried looking at the things that are around us that maybe sometimes it's hard to keep our focus. And so can I just remind us that it's really important that as believers in Jesus Christ, we remain united with one another? It's a critically important principle in the body of Christ. Let me remind you of a couple of places. Ephesians chapter 4, first three verses say this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering." forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so this idea of the unity of the Spirit is not something we need to generate. It already exists. We just need to keep it 
And the way we need to keep it is that we need to forbear one another in love. If your brother or your sister has a different idea about some of the things that are going on in the world today, we need to forbear one another in love. And we need to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Why do we need to keep the unity? Well, it's obvious, I guess, but can I just say this, that it's because our demonstrated visible love for one another is the thing that fuels our ministry effectiveness. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 before his crucifixion, that high priestly prayer, and start, I'm just going to read a couple of verses, John 17, 20 and 21, Jesus praying to the Father, neither pray I for these alone, meaning his disciples that he had spent the three years with, but for them also which shall believe on me through their words. So at that moment, Jesus is praying to the Father for you. He's praying for you and for me. Notice, what is it specifically that he's praying for you and for me? Verse 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Why? Why is it important to be one? That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Do you see, if we lose the effectiveness and the strength and the power that comes in the unity of the family of God. If we allow the devil to divide us, we lose our ministry effectiveness. And you can argue all you want about the current events of this world and the, and the, and the politics involved and, and, and the election coming up, all that all you want to. But at the end of the day, there's a spiritual force behind it that's interested in stopping the work of the Lord, right? So the challenges that we face in the days in which we live, they make this unity a challenge, don't they? It, so I put this in your notes. It appears as though division and conflict are the ultimate goal of our social climate. It appears as though the devil is making the house divided. And a house divided against itself cannot stand. At least that's an immediate consequence. It seems as though that's an immediate target or a goal it appears as though the devil is using that tactic of all the controversy and if you're you know right wing you're going to be extremely right wing now if you're left wing you're going to be extremely left wing now and there's ample evidence for people on both wings by the way to glob glob onto and to hang on to and accuse the other side it's interesting you could say that Okay, great, you're divided. But it's actually the division serves a greater purpose. And, well, the greater purpose is that you'd be distracted and you'd be dissatisfied. And, and then ultimately, he can bring in the end. He can set up a one-world government, and that's prophecy, and we've talked about that before. But for us personally, for us in our individual lives, I, I want to address this because in order for us to be able to move forward with God, with our walk with Him and our personal ministries, we have to learn to forgive. We have to keep the unity and we have to learn to forgive. So I've given this message today the title, Forgiveness, the key to moving forward. We're in the second half of chapter number two of 2 Corinthians. You'll remember that 2 Corinthians' theme is all about the minister and the ministry. And chapter number one, we saw 
suffering as the necessary element to being an effective minister of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, the overarching theme is forgiveness, which is a necessary balance, right, to righteous judgment and separation from sin. If you were with us, you remember last week, as we saw the first eight verses, um, we talked about the story that came from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the church had to exercise church discipline and remove a man from their fellowship because he was having sexual relations with his dad's wife. And it was affecting everybody, and, and Paul said, hey, you, you got to get rid of that guy. But as we saw last week, it's apparent that that move of church discipline was actually an act of love. It actually did its work. That man actually repented and now needs to be forgiven to be brought back into the fold. And, and we saw that last week. Well, today, it continues that theme, but it expands looking forward beyond the forgiveness, and we're going to look at three specific steps in moving forward beyond such a conflict. Okay, you guys ready? We'll jump in at verse number nine, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Follow along. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place." For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll jump into our outlines. Heavenly Father... As we come before you in this section of Scripture, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would not just teach us things, but that you would move our hearts and our souls to own this truth. And as necessary, in each of the lives that are hearing your words today, that each individual would recognize exactly what the holy God of the universe is whispering in their ears. What do they need to do? And wherever we find ourselves, Lord, I, I pray as we sang in the song, here's my heart, Lord, speak that which is true. And Lord, you always speak truth. You are the truth. But I pray that you would speak in such a way that we can hear it. And I, and I pray that we would surrender our hearts to you as we sang that song. And I pray that you would be honored as we do whatever work is necessary, should division exist, to forgive and to move on. And to glorify you in such a time when it seems like nobody can find it. The body of Christ ought to be able to find it. So do your work, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, step number one. We've got three steps to work our way through this thing is, is the release. It's the first three verses of this section of Scripture. Without a doubt, I think you would have to agree that 
the key verse that you must understand in all of this little passage of Scripture is verse number 11. So we're going to jump ahead into verse number 11 where it says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We get the context. We get the situation. We know there's forgiveness that needs to be taken care of. We know that things need to take place. But it says, lest Satan, you need to get the spiritual understanding of what's going on behind the scenes if you're really going to get victory in these areas. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we, Christians, with the word of God, are not ignorant of his devices. I don't think any self-respecting, moderately interested Christian would deny that Satan is active and involved in trying to stop the work of the Lord. And so the first step to victory is letter A in your outline, and that's to know Satan's devices. You have to know what his devices are. Now, you need to do a little word study. You need to understand what words mean. That's an important part of Bible study. And so God uses the word device, device. What is the context? What is the meaning of the word device? Well, Satan's devices, he's talking about his intent, his desire, right? But what you need to understand is the word device is the same root as the word division. So this is the intent or the desire or the working of Satan to cause division. This is Satan's devices. He's dividing He's divisive, right? Which is appropriate in the context of what we're looking at with the idea of necessary forgiveness so we can restore unity and reconciliation. Very interesting that we get the words right as we're looking at this. There's similar ideas in other places in the scripture you may be familiar with. So, for example, in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, it's referred to as the wiles of the devil, the wiles of the devil. The wiles meaning a trick, some strategy for deception. Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Those people on Facebook aren't your enemy. Those people on the news aren't your enemy. Those people in public office aren't your enemy. Those people who study viruses aren't your enemy. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, right? But we do have a spiritual battle. It's against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You see... There's always a spiritual component behind the scenes that are using human instrumentality. But the people aren't your problem. So you need to understand so that you can stand against the trickery, the deception, the wiles, the devices of Satan. In a time of spiritual battle... Satan has some tricks up his sleeve. And the, and the goal is to divide us so that he can stop God from continue to work, continue to keep working. And you need to know them. So I have several listed for you. Number one, 
Satan defies the work. He defies the work of God. We see this in a lot of places. We're not going to go into great detail in each of these things. I'm just going to remind you of things you're probably aware of. Zechariah chapter 3, verse number 1 says this, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So God is going to do a great work, and well, lo and behold, who shows up? Satan shows up to resist or to defy the work of God. Think, for example, Judas Iscariot and his betrayal of Jesus Christ. John chapter 13 and verse number 2, and supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Judas Iscariot himself as a man is not really the problem. It's the devil behind him that put into his heart to act in a manner to fulfill his will to try and stop the plan of God. So Satan's devices include defying the work of God. And he does that because, number two, he desires worship. He desires worship. Matthew chapter 4, this is the time when Jesus Christ is tempted of the devil in the wilderness right after his baptism. And in verses 8 and 9, it says, Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now, that's a mouthful right there. And we're going to back up for just a second because you need to get it. You need to understand that the devil shows up. The devil takes Jesus Christ up to a high mountain. And he looks out and he says, see all the kingdoms of the world. They're under my control. And I will give them to you, Jesus, if only you'll bow down and worship me. And what does Jesus say? No, I'm sorry. Liar, liar, pants on fire. They don't belong to you. They belong to me. Sorry, bud, you're wrong. He doesn't say that. In fact, I didn't put it in your notes, but the next verse, he says, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him alone. Right? In other words, he doesn't say you don't have the power of the kingdoms of this world. So, friends, we are dealing with a situation where it seems like all the kingdoms of the world are agreeing together about what's going on right now. Hmm. I wonder who's behind that. What is it that he's really looking for? He's looking for worshipers. Oh, by the way, by the way, I got to throw this in. I mean, I, I know you're smart people, but I just got to throw this in. All these things, all these kingdoms, I'll give to you, Jesus, if you will worship me. Um, how do you suppose an individual gets to be in charge of major kingdoms in this world? To whom must he bow the knee in order to even be in charge? Hmm. Well, the answer's clear, right? 
There's a prerequisite for being in charge of the kingdoms of this world, friends. Matthew 4, 8, and 9 lets you know about that. Well, it's all going to come to realization soon and very soon. We'll have the rapture of the church and the coming tribulation time. And during the tribulation time, the things that we read in the book of Revelation come true. So in Revelation 13 and verse number 8, it says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. This is the beast. This is the Antichrist. This is the Judas Iscariot. This is the son of perdition, the one in whom Satan dwells. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Because ever since he was Lucifer, the anointed cherub in Isaiah 14, all he's ever wanted was to be like the Most High. He desires worship. He desires worship. And so in order to carry out his plan, number three, he deceives the world. He deceives the world. Once again, we're in the time of tribulation as context in Revelation chapter 12 and verse number 9. This is something that will come to pass soon enough on our calendar. We are at the last moments. Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Well, that's today's current climate. The entire world is deceived, and the devil's behind it. Friends, we shouldn't be ignorant of his devices, lest he gain an advantage over you. You see how important that is? So, for example, you can go back to the garden, and 2 Corinthians 11.3 refers to the serpent and Eve, and it talks about how the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. You remember that story? So through his subtlety, the, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, Genesis chapter 3. Well, subtlety, to be subtle, you know what another word for that is? Wily, the wiles of the devil, the subtlety, the trickery, the deception of the devil. See, he deceived her and she ate of the fruit. And he does it while he's posing as godly. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 14 talks about the devil and he can transform himself into an angel of light. He's religious. He'll use the scripture. That's how far the rabbit hole goes. Revelation 2 talks about it in verse 24. But unto you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. The depths of Satan go so far. It's not in the obvious evil, sinful behaviors of man. It goes much deeper than that. It goes into posing as an angel of light and having ministers who pose as ministers of righteousness, faking people out into thinking they're okay because they're religious, thinking they're okay because they check their church box once a week, thinking they're okay because 
Well, I have my name on a membership roll somewhere. And so there's no need to listen any further. There's no need to really get my life right. There's no need to actually be righteous. This is the subtlety of the devil. These are the wiles of Satan. This is how he operates. These are the depths of the evil. There's no question that some of that's going on today in 2020. So the Christian has to be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. And that's even selfishly important because, number four, he devours worshipers. He desires worship, but if you're a worshiper of God, well, he's here to devour you. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That's you. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So we saw back in Zechariah 3 that the devil resists the work of God, and so we should just resist him. Let's just resist him right back. How about that? We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but, but we need to stand against him. Stand against the wiles of the devil. Resist it. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, Jesus talks about praying for Simon Peter because the devil wanted to sift him as wheat. Running him through a set of screen filters and sift him through his weed and, and remove anything righteous out of his life. Resist. Have faith. Because we're all in this together, y'all. And we need to do it together. And we are not ignorant. We are not ignorant. In Job chapter 41, speaking of Satan using the, the parallel, calling him Leviathan. Job 41.12, God says this, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Satan is the quick change artist. Satan is constantly changing his garments. Who can keep up? Well, you can, Bible believer. You can if you have a Bible. You can keep up. Because God says, I will not conceal his parts or his power or his comely proportion. They're revealed. And we've just revealed some of them. If you have a Bible, you can stay up. You can understand. And that's letter B in your outline. Not just to know Satan's devices, but now you've got to know Scripture's design. Now we'll go back to verse number 9, where he starts out and he says, For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. Listen, friends, the Scriptures are given to us for many reasons. We all know 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We know that Scriptures are profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. We know that those are the four big reasons why the scriptures are given to us, okay? But can I also add to that that the scriptures are given to us 
as a test. It's a test. And so we see that right here. Also, for, to this end, also did I write, right? So in your notes, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to test their obedience. That's what he's saying. I wrote to you so that I might know the proof of you whether or not you would be obedient to the word of God or not. And that's why my job primarily is simply to take the word of God, study it accurately, and present it clearly to you so that you can understand what God says. Whether or not you choose to obey it is your test. It's your test. It's not my test. It's not my test if you reject the word of God and run away. It's your test. My test is whether I present it accurately. That's what I'll give an answer for, right? I'll give an answer for whether I respond to the scriptures as God speaks to my life. There's a lot of things that pastors don't do well. There's a lot of things that we could learn. There's a lot of things we can improve in. But if we do the main thing right and communicate the word of God accurately to you, well, then you have every opportunity in the world to do anything and everything you ever needed to do because you have the Word of God. Now, in this particular situation, Satan's device in Corinth was first and foremost to use sin. So that story in 1 Corinthians 5 was that guy with that heinous physical sin and all those things we looked at already. And he did that so that he could infect the church with sin and hopefully like leaven... It would penetrate into all the whole lump and divide the church. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and he's like, you got to get that guy out. He's like a cancer. you got to cut him out. And it was a test to see whether the Corinthian church would be obedient enough to obey the mandate of scriptures. Paul writing 1 Corinthians was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and therefore scripture. And remove the guy. And praise God they did. And praise God, it worked. Because then ultimately we read that they obeyed, but then the guy obeyed. And he came back. So now the test in 2 Corinthians 2 is, okay, well, Satan now, his device is to keep people from forgiving. Now his device is to use bitterness. Now, since the discipline worked, now, since the man is repentant, they need to forgive him, and they need to move on, or else Satan will have an advantage by planting that root of bitterness we see in Hebrews 12, 15 among the church, and to keep the house divided, and a house divided against itself cannot stand. So the main issue with release, this is our first step, the release, the main issue with release is forgiveness, of course. Will you, Christian, today, hearing my voice, will you prove your obedience to the Scriptures concerning forgiveness of a repentant brother? In verse 10, Paul says, To whom ye, Corinthians, forgive anything, I forgive also. You forgive them, that's good enough for me. I'll forgive them too. 
For if I forgave anything, to whom, forgave, to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. So the issue of forgiveness is an act of what we call the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer, the idea that, that every single believer in Jesus Christ acts as a priest. You can go directly to God. You don't need an intermediary human man as a priest. You don't need to go into a closet and confess your sins to a man who's called a priest. You don't need somebody else to go to God for you. You can go to God for yourself. You don't need a priest to pronounce forgiveness over you. You can do that. You can do that. And we need to function as legitimate New Testament church age priests. No need for the robes and the candles and the pomp and the circumstance. Just walk in communion with the Lord. He says, forgave I it in the person of Christ. In the person of Christ. So in other words, think about this. When you truly forgive somebody they're forgiven it's over you have forgiven them therefore they are forgiven now there is a roman catholic perversion of that and that's how they go to places like this and in john chapter 20 they go to places like verse 23 whosoever sins you remit they're remitted unto them and whosoever sins you retain they're retained and they want to say that's the apostolic succession into the current priesthood and the priests have the ability to forgive your sins. And it's a perversion of John chapter 20. But really the understanding that we need to get, for example, is illustrated for us in Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Notice this, where Paul says this, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, talking about Jesus, is preached unto you, the forgiveness of sins. And by him, Jesus, all that believe are justified from all things, from which he cannot be justified by the law of Moses. In other words, when you go to somebody and you take the word of God and you preach the gospel to somebody else and you tell them, if you'll receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today and if you'll mean it, all your sins are forgiven. And on the authority of God's word and on the authority of what God said he would do, you literally can pronounce that forgiveness on people knowing that it's not you that's forgiving it, God's forgiving it. But you can say you are now forgiven. How can you do that? Because the Bible says it. This is what Jesus provided and if you follow the prescription, you get in on it too. Whosoever sins you remit, they're remitted. Whosoever sins you retain, they're retained. It's all based on the authority of God's word. You need to understand the design of scripture. That's why it's so important. So forgiving others is critically important. It's, it's important for his sake, for the guy who needs to be forgiven. So in your notes, I put it this way. If he can't receive forgiveness from you, he'll remain in bondage to guilt a person needs to be forgiven and can't be forgiven will think, well, heck, I mean, no matter what I do, it's not good enough. I've tried. I did what you said. It's still not good enough. What's the point? I'm useless. Forget it. I'm cashing it all in. 
and they're in bondage to their guilt unnecessarily. A person like that is discouraged, he's depressed. But most importantly, I guess, is that Satan gets the advantage because he's divided. He's not united. But not just for his sake, the person who needs the forgiveness, for your sake too. Because if you can't offer forgiveness, then you'll remain in bondage to a grudge. You see, if you're lording over somebody their wrongdoing, if you're holding it over their head that they can't ever seem to do enough to be enough to do, and they want to be forgiven, remember, the person has to want to be forgiven. But you're not willing to forgive them and to move on? Well, then you are in bondage. Being the kind of a person who would say something like, well, I don't care what you do now. I can't take you back anymore. That person is bitter, self-righteous, self-justifying, judgmental. And maybe most importantly, Satan gets the advantage because they're divided. See how that works? You've got to get past this. You've got to get past it. It's important so that you can let go of the past and move on. Release that debt. Release that burden. Otherwise, you'll remain in bondage to Satan's devices, and God won't be able to use you anymore going forward. In Paul's case, once the forgiveness was given, I want you to notice what happened. This is point number two. We're calling it refresh. Verse number 12, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, well, what do you know? God opened a door of utterance to preach the gospel for new people in new places. Should we be surprised that that door was offered after forgiveness was offered? In order to maintain the unity of the body? So that's kind of a byproduct. The real issue in verses 12 and 13 is verse 13. The real issue is where Paul says in verse 13, okay, I went to Troas to preach the gospel. God opened the door. That was cool. But I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Paul was troubled. He was troubled about the state of the Corinthians. Was Satan getting an advantage? Would they obey the scriptures? Will they actually forgive this brother and unite and reconcile? Remember we talked at the end of chapter number one how Paul decided to not go back and visit them a second time. And, and, and that's verse 23 of chapter one if you want to glance at that. But he, he didn't go back for a reason. We, we studied that already. And, and yet still he was very interested in knowing how they're doing. So how could Paul actually find out about the status of the Corinthian church before social media? I mean, how could he possibly? Well, he would do what we should do even now. He needed to talk to the pastor. So, for example, Hebrews 13, 17, the mandate is given to those who lead, and it says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Why? For they, those that have the rule over you, right, watch for your souls 
as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that's unprofitable for you. No, listen, nobody has a better, clearer picture on the state of the entire church as a body than the pastor and leaders. Nobody does. Because it's our job to do that. It's, it's what we're called to do. It's what we're supposed to do. And Titus is the man that Paul left in Corinth to help lead the church. In fact, if you just study Titus's name in the Bible, you'll find that it appears more in the book of 2 Corinthians than any other place in the Bible. And I just grabbed a couple of references for you. In 2 Corinthians 7, 6, he says, Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us... By the coming of Titus, because now I get the word from Titus about how you're really doing. 2 Corinthians 8, 16, but thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. Man, I care for you. I'm the church planter. I'm the missionary. I'm the one that came in here and got you established. But man, Titus has the same earnest care for you because he's there day to day caring for you. So Paul says in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 8, whether any do inquire of Titus, he's my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. You see, Paul wanted to refresh himself and be recharged by sending, spending some time with a partner and a fellow helper in the ministry. Because the main issue with refreshing is fellowship. It's fellowship. Release was forgiveness, but refreshing, that's fellowship. And by the way, it's fellowship in the gospel. So we're going to need to get to the third point here in a second. But fellowship means by definition that we're united. You don't have fellowship with people that you're at odds with, right? So Paul needed the refreshing. He needed to clear his mind about any division that might have existed in the body. And he needed to hear from Titus because he wasn't there and he didn't know exactly how it was going. It's like Paul understood what was written in Proverbs 25 and verse 25 where it says, As cold waters to a thirsty soul. Think how refreshing that is. Cold waters to a thirsty soul. So is good news from a far country. And Paul needed that good news from a far country that the brethren are good. If Titus could give that good report, man, it would refresh him and recharge him so that he could be ready to do what is our third point in the last section of this chapter, and that's represent. Move forward, right? Verse number 14, now thanks be unto God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Stop there a second. Read that again. Thanks be unto God which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Amen. Amen. Memorize that. Get that down. This is one of the key unconditional promises that should be right at the top of your list. If you want to write it in the front blank pages of your Bible, you need to know this verse. You need to remember this principle. You need to let the Holy Spirit comfort you and help you through the idea that you will always triumph in Christ. He says it in other places, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 37, nay, in all these things, the things he's referring to are being like sheep led to the slaughter. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Man, y'all, are you picking up when I'm laying down here? This should be, I'm here to help you today. This should be particularly sweet for us today. We're all trying to navigate the craziness of our current world. Even with all the radical changes to our daily lives, even with all the wiles of the devil, even with all the suffering and the uncertainty of today, God always causes us to triumph in Christ. You believe that? You know, it's in the Bible, by the way. <laughs> Titus 1-2 says God can't lie. If you didn't know, you can check that out. That promise is critical, y'all, because you're going to need it. You're going to need to remember that when you get out there and you face this present evil world and you're trying to walk through the doors of utterance that the Lord is opening for you to take a stand for the Word of God. And, well, when you do that, you're going to face some opposition and mocking and trial. And, well, the world is getting so crazy that the opposition may start to turn physical. Verse 14, he always causes us to triumph in Christ. But it doesn't end there. It goes on and it says, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. God's going to make, the, make manifest the savor of his knowledge in every place. But he wants to do it by us. That's why we're going to triumph because he's going to make sure that it gets done. As his body, as the body of Christ, we manifest his knowledge. We manifest his presence in this world. That's our conversation, as the Bible uses the word. It's our lifestyle. Yes, it's our utterance. By us, he gets that done. You know what that means? It means God needs you. God needs you. Now, I know that a lot of times we say, well, God doesn't need you. Got to get done even without you. And, and I guess at some level that's kind of true. But God needs you in the context of the fact that he chose to use men to accomplish his purpose in this world. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 1 that we then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. We are workers together with God, and he set up the system that way. Therefore, he needs us to stand up. He needs us to take a stand and to do what he's called us to do. Quit arguing and fighting and crying about stupid stuff that the devil's trying to distract you with, and let's get back on target and do what he's called us to do. He needs you to do it. Are you willing to do it? 1 Corinthians 16, 13, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men. Be strong. Ezekiel 22, verse 30, I sought for a man among them that he should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. The sad result in Ezekiel was well, I couldn't find any. Couldn't find any. Let that not be said of us today. 
You say, I don't think God needs me. We've always said that. Everybody's replaceable. Nobody's all that special. God's perfect. If I mess up, I don't bring him down. If I do great, I don't make him any better, right? Okay, in a sense, as an individual, maybe God doesn't need you because, well, we're all replaceable if we get out of his will. But the fact that God needs Christian men and women to stand for him is absolutely true. Your choice, Christian, is whether or not you want to be numbered among those people. I do. I think you do too. So the main issue with representing, well, it's forsaking. That's your role. The triumphing part, that's God's role. He'll take care of that. Your role is being willing to forsake. You see, for God to use you, you're likely going to have to sacrifice some things. And we get that because he uses the word savor in this passage. Verse 15, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Savor, some people can use in the context of taste. This is savory. But it's actually referred to in the context of smell. And that's the way we see it in the scriptures mostly. Genesis 8, 21, the first time it's ever used in the Bible. It says, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. This is at the end of the Noah's flood. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite anymore every living thing as I've done. Or we could jump ahead talking about Jesus Christ in Ephesians 5 and verse 2 and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And what else did he do? And hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So I want you to understand that the sweet savor to God, it comes from sacrifice. That's where it comes from. The reference in Genesis 8, Noah, the verse prior, Noah just built an altar and sacrificed on the altar. Jesus Christ himself sacrificed himself. He himself was the offering. And literally in the Old Testament law, it refers to a specific offering called the burnt offering. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse number 9. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. It's all through the Old Testament, Exodus 29, 18. And thou shalt burn the whole ram upon the altar. It is a burnt offering unto the Lord. It is a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. This burnt offering represents total consecration to God. Everything is burned up on the altar. In other words, there's nothing left over. There's nothing left over. And when you do that, when you pour out your life for God's service, man, that smells good to the Lord. Man, he loves that. Then it's interesting because it goes on, verses 15 and 16, and your savor of Christ has two different audiences, right? So, number one, to the saved, you represent death. So it says, to the saved and to the lost, to them that perish. To the one, it's the savor of death 
unto death, and to the other, the savor of life unto life. And so number two in your notes is to the lost you represent life. Let me explain it. First off, you know that that's the application because grammatically that's the order. It lists to the saved and it lists to the perishing. Then it says to the one and then it says to the other. That's grammatically how you would put that together. But it makes sense doctrinally as well. Because to the saved, a Christian who is a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord, has a life of total sacrifice and consecration, demonstrating your death to yourself before other Christians. And that life, that illustration of death to yourself, well, that's the savor of Christ. That's the example that other Christians need to see. Whereas to lost people, your savor of Christ is life unto life. God has given me life where I was spiritually dead. And now my life and my message represent to you that you too can have life, you who are perishing. That's the savor of Christ to lost people. Life is available. But can I just say, in either case, isn't it amazing that God would use us to do that? I mean, seriously, do you all have mirrors? Do you look at yourself every once in a while and think, wow, I get to get in on this? And so it goes on and it says, who is sufficient for these things? Who could dream that God would do such eternally significant things? Who? Well, in and of ourselves, the answer is clearly nobody. Nobody. But you flip the page if necessary. You look down in chapter 3, a few verses down. And it says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, in verse 5, to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiencies of God. Amen. Our sufficiencies of God. We're going to come back next week and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he says, man, you need to come worthily. Well, it's not worthy, it's worthily, but who's worthy of the body and blood of Christ? Nobody, but through him, he makes us such, right? And so our sufficiency is of God because of what we do in verse 17. See, and we'll be done shortly. Where he says in verse 17, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Now again, a little word study to corrupt to corrupt literally means to rot, to putrefy. Rotting things, by the way, smell bad. The burnt offering of a life and consecration to God smells good. Corrupting God's word smells bad. You remember... Where it talks about Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 2, it's a prophetic reference, I think, from Acts 16. And, and it says that, you know, he was only three days in the heart of the earth and that he would not see corruption. 
He wouldn't see corruption, the rotting, the putrefaction of his body. Whereas when Lazarus died and Jesus delayed getting there, and Jesus is like, man, let's go call him out. And they're like, Lord, he stinketh. He's been in the grave four days already because rotting, corrupted things stink. And Paul says, many people are out there and they're corrupting God's word. They're corrupting God's word. We're not like that, but there's many people out there that do that. So to corrupt something is to cause it to lose purity. And since every word of God is pure, and since the words of the Lord are pure words, right? Tried in a furnace of earth seven times, purified seven times. Well, you wouldn't be surprised then, would you, if I told you that every other English translation of the Bible changed that word corrupt in this verse and replaced it with a form of the word pedal. Not like the thing on your bicycle. Pedal, like to sell stuff. We're not as many who pedal or sell the Word of God, although every other English Bible on the market has a copyright so that they can indeed... Oh, by the way, I think you do peddle it. That's interesting, just interesting. I think maybe 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 6.10 applies, for the love of money is the root of all evil, isn't it? But back to the context, because we're actually not talking about the written Scriptures in this particular case, but we're talking about the spoken ones. Because apparently, even in Paul's day, many were doing that. You could jump ahead to 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 2, where it says, But we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, like many people do. You see, back in Paul's days, there were false teachers, false prophets, false apostles, false doctrines, right? We refer to 2 Corinthians 11, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. They're apostles. They represent God. They speak on God's behalf, but they corrupt his words. And in 1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and here they are, doctrines of devils. Doctrines of devils. It's the depths of Satan. He's religious. What are they going to do? Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Listen, he says we don't corrupt the word of God when we speak it. As a result, we can be that sweet savor of Christ, whether in front of saved people or whether in front of lost people. This is the ministry of the Christian proclaiming the word of God. We saw the priesthood of the believer. This is the office of the prophet of the believer. So listen, 
We need to let go of the past. We need to reconcile and unify. We need to ask for forgiveness and we need to offer forgiveness. We need to come back together as one in any area that you find yourself lacking. And we need to move on into ministry, y'all. We need to move on into ministry and share God's word with others looking for opportunities to do it. Especially in these crazy days. We got to keep our eye on the prize, right? There's ministry to be done. There's people out there who need Jesus Christ, and we need to reach them before it's too late. And we can't waste the rest of our lives away being consumed with all the divisive issues that are being thrust before us daily in the news. We're done, but don't turn your ears off. I want you to hear the last 60 seconds because if you are in this room, or if you're not in this room but listening to me today, and you find yourself at odds with another Christian believer, will you listen to me? For whatever reason, God allowed it to happen. Recognize that the devil wants to use it against you and against the Lord. We're not ignorant of that. And we need to steadfastly resist it in the faith. So can I just encourage you? Take a deep breath. Swallow once hard. And go and reconcile with your brother. Go and reconcile. Because forgiveness is the key to moving forward.